So if you would, go ahead and turn to Psalm 63. Um, and, and I chose to look at this psalm when I was asked to preach this morning. Uh, and you'll notice with the title, uh, Thirsting After God, The Refreshing of the Redeemed. This is what we need. And what we find as we look through the psalm is this is what we continually need. And the fact that thirst is given to us, as David will we'll talk about it as we'll see in just a moment, is a great work of grace. The thirsting that we have after God is a work of grace in us. Now, at the risk of having you go up, down, up, down, up, down in your seat this morning, I would ask you to do this as we read this psalm. Would you stand with me if you're able to stand as we read the Word of God together this morning? Psalm 63, David writes these things. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I skipped that and jumped ahead, but forgive me. That was unintentional. That's what he says first, and that's important. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night... For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. The interesting thing about Psalm 63 is that it, it introduces us to a very common analogy in Scripture that speaks to our need and deep desire to be found in the presence of God. And that analogy is one of, of physical thirst. So the interesting thing about, about humans is, that, is the length that we will go to to satisfy this thing we know as thirst. Um, I mean, thirst can become an all-consuming drive in us, depending on the degree to which we are thirsty. And we've all seen some of those old movies that has the person who finds himself, how this happens, I don't know how, but finds himself in a desert crawling across the hot sand, and he sees an oasis way out yonder and crawls toward it because that's the hope of his refreshing. But when he gets there, what does he find? It was a mirage. And see, that can happen to us as well because we have a thirst in us. I believe we are hardwired because of the propensity and hardwiring in us to worship and to be outside of ourselves in something greater that we seek to satisfy that thirst. But oftentimes what we do is find ourselves crawling to a mirage. At worst, we find ourselves crawling to a pool of salt water, which makes the problem worse. So David helps us here in understanding what we must do to satisfy this work of grace in us that is thirst. And when we find out that there is only one available and abundant stream to satisfy our thirst, it is a good, good day in our lives. 
It's good to know where we can go to have our thirst satisfied. Now, here's my prayer, not only for myself, but for us as a congregation. And this is a bold prayer, and I'm going to explain why in just a moment. But that we would be focused on pursuing satisfaction for our thirst. But, But before that, that we would cry out to God to make us a people who are desperately thirsty for Him. Now, here's why I said that's a bold prayer. And it's not an easy one. Because what we find if we pursue this analogy of thirst in Scripture, and as we will see it very clearly in Psalm 63, and we ask ourselves the question, well, what is it that makes us desperately thirsty for God? It's adversity, difficulty, tragedy, things that we would rather not deal with in life. That's what makes us desperately thirsty for God. Now, in the context of Psalm 63, This was a psalm that David wrote in the middle of great adversity and definitely dealing with a situation in which he did not care to be in. David had been betrayed by his son Absalom. This is all things that Pastor Brian led us through in 2 Samuel. Betrayed by his son Absalom, having been pursued into the wilderness. Now, when the Bible talks about the wilderness of Judah, it is not talking about a forest. It is a wild place. It is a place that is barren, waterless, and hot. It's what we would call... A rocky desert. So this is where he finds himself. This is important because though we immediately pick on the, up on the fact that David is talking about spiritual thirst here, what brings him to that point is the, is the reality of the very real physical situation that he is in at the moment. And we're going to see that that is extremely important in just a moment. So it's a point of interest that David finds himself in this place. And it puts him in a position where he confessed and realized his thirst for God. So the question comes for us, do our difficulties, our tragedies, our bad newses, all those things you put together, do they cause us to thirst after God or do they embitter us and cause us to run from Him? The mark of Christian maturity would be that we praise God for the trial that causes us to long for Him more. That's hard. And I'm not saying that we get to the point that like during the trial, we thank God for the suffering. That's hard. And perhaps you can get there. Most of the time in my life, it's been looking back at the trial, him having brought me through it. And I say, wow, God is good. But is it much different or isn't it much different to be in the midst of that pain and suffering and say, wow, God is good. Spurgeon said this, and and, and, and this should be our, our prayer. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And that's hard. But that's what trial should bring us to. I mean, you think about kissing adversity and difficulty and saying, thank you for throwing me, for dashing me against my only hope. But that's its design. That's the hard thing to see in the middle of it. And David talks about this through the analogy of thirst. And and as I said, this is something that's common in Scripture. Think of some of these verses, which you probably know well. Psalm 42, which was written by the sons of Korah, written in a time of adversity, says, As as a deer longs for the flowing streams, this is verses 1 and 2, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And we'll find that that little last phrase is important as well. Because he's talking about gathering together with God's people. 
Then Psalm 143, verse 6, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a, like a parched land. And as you know, a parched land is cracked wide open. Then we come to these, these invitations in Scripture that have to do with this thirst. Isaiah 55, verse 1. And how beautiful is this? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And we find that Jesus takes this invitation, which we'll revisit at the end of this sermon. He takes this invitation and says, it's coming to me. John 7, 37, at the Feast of Tabernacles. And when Jesus does this, as we will see later, is absolutely phenomenal. He says, he says on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We'll find that that is absolutely amazing. Now, his timing was perfect and powerful. So this is a physical condition that describes and stands as an illustration for a spiritual condition. So we have to ask several questions about thirst, and namely these three that we'll look at this morning. Number one, what is thirst? It's a very general question, but it gets us into that mindset. Number two, where does this thirst, this specific thirst we're going to talk about, where does it come from and what, or what causes it? And then third, how is this thirst satisfied? We have to know those things as we walk through life. So verse one, as I said, is, is the foundation and context for understanding how you and I benefit greatly from Psalm 63. Because we're not, I, I think I'm, I could be bold enough to say we are not going to find ourselves in the situation David found himself specifically. We're not going to find ourselves in the wilderness of Judah running from uh, an offspring who's trying to kill us. I'd be shocked if anybody had that story. But yet yeah, it, it teaches us something very important. So David, here's what's amazing about this. And the reason I say it is the contextual foundation for us is David is taking the immediate physical difficulty and very real need he is experiencing and he's leapfrogging over it to the thing that he most desperately realizes he needs, that of which his physical situation merely shadows. Think about that for a moment. David is in this situation. So when he talks about as in a dry and weary land, that's where he is. And you think he wasn't thirsty running from Absalom and being out in the wilderness? Oh, yes, he was desperately thirsty. But yet that's not what he prays about, is it? He says, my soul thirsts for you, oh God. My flesh faints for you. And there should be no doubt in our minds that David found himself in a very physically demanding, challenging, depressing, demeaning, wearing out situation in this time. Listen to what Ahithophel, again, these should be familiar since Pastor Brian sort of walked us through these things. Ahithophel counsels Absalom about what he needs to do about his father as they're chasing him through the wilderness. He wants to set out to kill David. But I want you to note what he says about David, which should settle the issue as to whether or not David was discouraged and in need. 2 Samuel 17, verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. 
I will come upon him while he is, here it is, weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike down only the king. So he's going after David at his weakest. Even Ahithophel understands that David cannot be partying it up out in the wilderness on the run. He's discouraged, he's weak, he's depressed. All these things I think we can safely imply about David's situation. So what does that say to us about when we get to verse 1, about what David is doing in the wilderness? Taking all of that, and we would say, would it be a good thing to pray about those things? To pray for deliverance, to pray for healing, to pray for... Yes, absolutely. Nothing wrong with doing that. But what's amazing is David jumps over that. That's secondary. And he says, you know what this reminds me of? Is that I have a greater need. I have a greater thirst. I have a greater need for deliverance. It's to be delivered into the presence of God. To gather together with His people in the sanctuary. To behold His power and glory. To remember Him upon my bed. To lift my hands in prayer, to sing praises with my lips continually. All those things are much greater than just his physical deliverance from that very moment. As important as that was in his mind. But that's where his heart is. So this very real dilemma of Psalm 63 moved him to pray about an even greater reality. So that's the challenge for me and I think the challenge for all of us is do our difficulties move us to go to the greater reality. There's nothing wrong with praying about our circumstances and difficulties. We're, we should do that and th because that's their design to get us to press into God. But they should skip us up to something greater, something more desperately needed by us. So keeping with that in mind, let's answer this first question. What is thirst? What is it exactly? Just as a general question. And now, as we work through this psalm, it's, I'm not doing this, which I love to do, but I'm doing this. So, put your seatbelt on and keep up. <laughs> what is thirst? So, you know, real thirst is something that, it, if we really look into it, I'm talking desperate real thirst, is likely something we in this room don't know anything about. I mean, we used to live uh, in New Mexico, my family and I did. In the, in the four years we were there, it was constant. I, I swear we thought that the area was, was under a curse. Because storms would roll in from Albuquerque and go around Clovis and move on. It was weird. So we were in a drought the entire time we were there. One year we were there, it, it rained, I kid you not, one time the entire year. And that was on Father's Day, and the hail busted out my windows in my house. Happy Father's Day to me. So... But that, that's what we were, so we were constantly told, limit your water uses, don't water your lawn, don't wash your car. So there was a lack of water, but still this issue, you know, I wasn't in danger of dying of thirst, of it being difficult well. for me to find Psalm satisfaction for that need. Because real thirst results in parched lips, as, as a swollen tongue, dehydration, physical pain, and can lead to... Death. So, my soul for you, so David's situation, my soul so I think that what David in is much more God. dire than we tend when to think it is in this moment. And our problem is, again, we try to satisfy our spiritual thirst with things that don't satisfy. I mean, sometimes it's materialism, pleasure, popularity, reputation, whatever it may be, but they leave us more desperately 
thirsty. And I think this can actually be a problem, and it is. I mean, this is it's why we're talking about this morning. It's a problem in the community of faith, that we have a tendency to still pursue those things. And we can even pursue them when we gather to worship. Because keep in mind, the focus of David's pursuit of thirst was God himself, not all the trappings that God can provide. We get to the place where we understand that it's not just about the gifts which are good, but the giver who is even better. And that has to be our focus. So there's a few things I would, would say about the issue of thirst. Number one, this. Real spiritual thirst is uncomfortable. Look in verse 6. David says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. That's a good thing. But I think what David is getting at is it's a good thing to do that because you have been awakened because of this desperate need you have. That real spiritual thirst will cause sleepless nights. There's a sense in which we cease to function normally when we are parched for the presence of God. And again, there's grace in that. So David was experiencing, he, he longed to experience those, those nights even where he could meditate upon God and his goodness toward him. And so the child of God should not be okay with, with spiritual dryness. But we should cry out to God. It should be a declaration of war to have that thirst deeply satisfied. I mean, you've probably all experienced, you know, when is the worst time not, I think to think I'm about things you have no control over? In Laying in bed in the middle of the night. Usually it's about specific. between two and four. We're going to find ourselves in the wilderness of Judah. And it's horrible. Running from... Um, so what, what David, I think this is the, the area David's talking about. What is the solution yeah, to that? Because that's thirst, that's need, that's, that's anxiety yeah, about whatever it may be. And he says, I will meditate upon important. you in so, the watches of the night. David, here's what's I will seek your face in those times. For us so it, it's uncomfortable. David is taking the but the second thing is this. Spiritual thirst is unmistakable. Very real need he is Notice in verse 1 he said, earnestly I seek you. And the NIV says, I believe, early I seek you. Which is a good translation because the, the, the word there is a representation of dawn. Early in the day. So David's point is... He would not put this off, that this, this pursuit of having that thirst satisfied was an all-consuming effort by him. That it wasn't something to be ignored because it was unmistakable. And David recognized it, that that's what he really needed. And I would say, third, it's this. It's unbearable. Did you notice there in verse 1 how David brings up the, the base elements of who we are? into this equation. He says, my, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh. It's as if he's saying the very fibers that make me who I am are crying out for relief. Crying out for your presence in my life. It's what makes those fibers function and be worth anything. I need your very presence, O oh God. So he feels the anguish of spiritual dehydration. And it's not a good place to be. But again, there's grace in that. Anything that causes us to cry out and seek that relief is a gracious thing. So there's a, a clarifying and prioritizing element in this thirst. Because it's what David didn't pray for that's telling. In this moment, he didn't pray for his throne back. What he does imply is he wants to be in the sanctuary gathered with the people of God. He doesn't pray for his throne. He doesn't pray for the peace of Jerusalem. All good things. 
But what he prays for is God himself. Not the things that God has given or can give him, but God himself. Both the gifts and the giver are good, but the giver is to be desired above all. We all have things that we, that we like, and the, the, the challenge is liking those things that God does graciously give to us without making them idols, to see them as gifts, to see them as things that point us to Him, to be enjoyed in Christ. So that gives us you know, an indication of what thirst is and what real spiritual thirst is like. So where does this thirst come from? And I think we've, we've hit all over that as we've talked about it. But where does it come from? We said it's a work of grace over and over. It, it does not, what I mean by that is it does not result from our fallen condition, as we might suspect. Our fallen condition keeps us from feeling it or recognizing it or knowing where to go to have it satisfied. So this thirst is not natural, it's, it's supernatural. So it stands to reason that if we are created for worship, and we are, if there's a thirst in us to worship, to get caught up in something outside of ourselves, then we're going to try to have that satisfied somehow. The question is, in what? And with whom? And the first thing David says, the very important prerequisite that he mentions here, which is why I stopped and went back and said, I made a mistake, this is important, is what he says first. Oh God, you are my God. Grace is in place. David has experienced redemption in his God. He knows what it's like, as he wrote in Psalm 34, 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good. He understands that the man is blessed who takes refuge in him. So that is there. So we could say that this thirst that David is experiencing is a sign of spiritual life. And that's how we need to view it. So I would press in to say that every blood-bought child of God should experience this thirst. And David knows that there's nothing in his circumstances that will avail to take care of it because this is a dry and weary land. There's nothing here, not only to satisfy my physical thirst, but there's nothing in this place. There's nothing in all creation that will take care of my most deepest need. As beautiful as it may be and as great a gift as it may be, the only one that can really satisfy me is the one who made it, God himself. But note this carefully, and I'd hinted at this, and I think it's in this psalm, that there's a sense in which this thirst is always satisfied and should be sought to be satisfied communally. Because you find in these psalms that mention thirst, especially the one in Psalm 42, the sons of Korah, there's this constant crying out, when shall I go to the sanctuary? I used to lead the people in, I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. When shall I appear before God? With the multitude-keeping festival. But also here, David's longing to again behold God's power and glory. The reason he's reminiscing about having beheld God's power and glory in the sanctuary is because that's what he wants again, to be gathered together with the people of God, having that thirst satisfied. And when you read of worship in heaven, it's always communal. And the implication here is that part of having that thirst satisfied is that it can only be as we gather together, only as we find ourselves in gospel community with one another. This is why it's so alarming, not only for pastors, but should be for any believer, why it's so alarming outside of providential hindrance. 
for someone who names the name of Christ to have absolutely nothing to do with the church. That indicates two things, both of which I think are impossible. Either they don't care to have their thirst satisfied, or they cannot see at all that they have any thirst for God. And for a redeemed child of God to have that perspective, I, I feel, is an impossibility. And, and we'll, we'll give some evidence to that in just a moment. And that can be alarming to us because we may know people that we care deeply about who may consider themselves believers, and yet they have absolutely nothing to do with the community of faith outside of providential hindrance, as we've said before, outside of not being able to get out. But I can guarantee you those who are providentially hindered from attending worship or getting involved in the community of faith, it is still the cry of their heart to desire to be there. So, though it may be alarming to us, we need to wrestle with that truth. And for the sake of those who may hold that perspective, do some loving confrontation, perhaps, which is a whole other sermon, because that's difficult in itself. But the purpose of gathered worship would be to do just that, that we would seek the fountain. We would draw from the well of salvation together. Because God is saving individuals to bring them together, is he not? To put them in community, to make, him, to make them the company of the redeemed. And so hopefully, you know, as we come together and we worship and we sing, you know, great songs, you know, may it never be that we leave and say, wow, what great music that was this morning. What a great sermon that was this morning. Today accepted. Um, no, I'm kidding. But that we would be, you know, wow, how those things calmed my heart, focused my mind, and saw me and caused me to, to see what a great God I serve that we sit before that we worship, that we offer praise to. Because what it is, as you see in verse 2, because what David is recalling in this verse is his experience with God's people, seeing God's power and glory. That's his desire. Because he understands that that's where the thirst is really satisfied, is seeing God display his strong arm towards him, towards his people. So I hope that as we gather together, our expect, expectation and desire is to see worship not as just a duty, but as something we long for to satisfy spiritual thirst. They should not be ends in and of themselves. Singing, all that, as, as important as it is, and as, as a natural thing as we should do, because you've You've heard it said, I heard this said, and it's, I got in trouble for saying it one time. When I say I got in trouble, some people didn't like it, and they told me about it. But really, it's not mine. It's Alistair Begg's. So I'll say it. And if you don't like it, I can give you the address to his church in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. But he said, you've heard it said that dead men tell no tales. Dead men sing no songs. And so this should be a natural occurrence in us that we come here to be refreshed and to sing, to have our souls satisfied and to get more of God. So the last question we'll answer is this. If that's where the thirst comes from. It's a, it's, it's a work of grace, and it points to something in us, and God will put us in difficult circumstances to show us our deeper need. 
We say, well, where's this thirst satisfied? I mean, at this point, we understand where it's satisfied. You know where I'm headed with this. There's no surprises, right? But watch what David does here. Because there's a little to consider. As you look at verses 3 through 8, in all the statements David has made in this psalm, he's made one thing abundantly clear in his experience, that his thirst is only ever quenched by God. It is created by God, and it is satisfied by God. And verse 3 makes this abundantly clear. Look at this. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So David's confession is that the covenant love of God, the relationship he has with the sovereign creator of the universe was far better than going on even living. Look, God may take away things that you hold very dear. He may not bring a deliverance from your situation. He may not bring healing. He may not let that loved one be okay. But here's where you can bank it. God will never take away from you what is most important in all of reality, and that is his steadfast love. Because of the cross of Christ, you can count on that more than you can count on the fact that you exist. Because of the cross of Jesus, everything will be okay. He could take a lot of things from us that he's never promised that we could have forever. The one thing he has promised we could have forever is himself. And he will never leave us nor forsake us, ever. This is what David realizes. This is why he could say in the midst of all that difficulty, when he is in very real danger of dying, he says, your steadfast love, though, is better than life. One of those hard statements that is good to hear and to be reminded of continually. God's love is everything to us. I mean, the, the solid focus of the subject of this psalm is God himself. Did you notice it But in verses 3 through 8? Look at this. The second person pronoun, how often he uses it. Look upon you. See, your power and your glory, your steadfast love. I will praise you, bless you. In your name I will lift up my hands. My mouth will praise you. I remember you. I meditate upon you in the shadow of your wings. It's over and over and over again. But David says, the, the greatest need I have is you. And we have to be refocused sometimes because we honestly start to see a lot of things as being our greatest need as we walk the earth because they're very real, very physical. But we can't let that overshadow the greater reality. Three things I think David does because of this reality. Because God's loving kindness is better than life, here's what he says he'll do. And it has everything to do with praise and prayer. He says, my lips will praise you. When God satisfies you, you can't help but praise him. I mean, this is just, you know, C.S. Lewis did a good job of explaining this. This is just what we naturally do. You do it with food. You do it with water. You do it with your spouse, your children. When they have done something that is deeply satisfying or enjoyable to you, you automatically praise in some form or fashion. I mean, when you take a drink of cool water, when you have been really thirsty, 
What do you do? That's good. It happens naturally. And when you realize that your thirst is satisfied in God through Christ, you will praise him. It's natural. The second thing is this. He says, I will bless you as long as I live. Which we could say that's very similar. The effect of God's satisfying spiritual thirst is so great that it redirects, because what I wanted you to see there, as long as I live, it redirects the entire course of your life. If it stops at some point, it's not real. If at some point in your life, that praise and that lifting of hands and that prayer and that being satisfied in Him ceases, there's trouble. If there's no perseverance, there's trouble. Because David says, it's as long as I live. And not only will it be as long as he lives, it will extend into eternity. I will praise you. I will bless you. The third thing is this. He says, I will lift up my hands in your name. You know, these are hands that are lifted up in prayer and, and worship. Again, it's, it's redirecting who you are. It's taking those base elements of soul and flesh and focusing them squarely on who God is. And again, what does this tell us? Extremely important. The satisfaction for this thirst is not experienced from the things God does for us or gives to us, but at God himself. And you have to discern how that works itself out. Because they're very closely connected. Because he gives himself to us oftentimes in what he does for us and gives to us. But how do you see those things? Are they ends in and of themselves? For do you use up for your own joy and glory? Or are they tools he gives you to show, him, show you himself and for you to bless others? You know, one of the things we've, we talked about in the college class here, it seems over and over again recently as we work through the book of Acts, is the law of Christ, which Paul seems to talk about a lot. So fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is that? And as we pushed into it, we found that it's, it's the glory of God and the eternal well-being of others. That's the law we're under by the Spirit of God. So this is where this is pushing us. Verse 5, he says, my soul is satisfied with fat and rich food. Again, those are physical things he's talking about, but we know he's talking about the greater reality because he says it's his soul that is satisfied. And he says, I will take shelter in the shadow of your wings. And so as we think of the good things that God gives to us, and we have that challenge of not grabbing onto those things as ends in and of themselves, how do we, how do we enjoy those things without, you know, sort of dividing our devotion to the one who gave them to us? And the difficulty that that can sometimes present. Here's, here's the glorious truth about it, though. God has given us a gift that allows us to absolutely, completely cling to it and say, mine, I have to have this, and enjoy him forever and glorify him. All at the same time, and it's Jesus himself. That is the greatest gift he has given, which allows us to be utterly consumed in the gift while simultaneously being utter, utterly consumed in God himself, because it's it's that mystery. Because when you are consumed with Christ, you are consumed with the glory of God. So consider these questions. You know, 
What is it that God has created, redeemed, blessed, and even chastened and put me in, in difficulty for? What is the purpose of the thirst that he is creating in me, as desperate as it makes me? And what is this? His glory, that it would shine through you as a display of the riches of his grace. Because as it has been well said, and I say this unapologetically, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's just a reality. So my, my prayer for us is that we would keep, that God would keep us thirsting after him and that this thirst would never be quenched. Now that, that seems like a dichotomy. And there is, there is some difficulty there because when I say that this thirst would never be quenched, many of you may be thinking of what Jesus said in John 4. So what I'm going to re read here from John 4, does this contradict what I just said? Jesus answered, he's speaking to the woman at the well. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. So is Jesus saying that we should never experience this thirst? That once we find satisfaction in him, once we've been converted to Christ and the Spirit has opened our eyes to flee to him, that we should never be thirsty again? Is that what Jesus is saying there? When you and I both know by practical experience and by what we've just read in Psalm 63 that we do thirst and it's a work of grace. So what is Jesus saying there? What he's saying is answered in what he says he is. What becomes in us a well of water springing up to eternal life. That we have an, a never-ceasing, abundant supply to satisfy our thirst. So there's that, it's, it's never thirsting, but always refreshed at the same time. Or continually thirsting, continually refreshed. That's the tension we walk in. Thirsting after God, which He creates, but continually is there and abundantly able to refresh us to have us satisfied in that refreshing. And here's, here's the question that we have is, how do we drink? That's sort of the simple question. And this question goes for not only believers, but, but for unbelievers who, who God is awakening in them that realization of the spirit, a spiritual thirst that they have. And C.S. Lewis, again, who has a way with words and, and making things that are huge and complex, very simple. In his children's novel, The, the Silver Chair, which is part of the whole non, Narnia series, he describes a scene with this girl, Jill, who sees a lion and is scared to death. And we know the lion, right? Aslan. Scared to death and runs and runs and runs until she wears herself out and is on the point that she's, she thinks she's dying of thirst. And she hears a brook in the distance, and so she runs toward it. But when she gets to the brook, she looks up on the other side, and guess who's sitting there? Aslan. The lion is sitting there. So this is the conversation they have, and I think it's telling for us. And, and, and if you've never come to Christ in repentance and faith, listen closely to this. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I would, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. 
And as Jill gazed at the motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Do you see what C.S. Lewis has done there? The stream is there. You come to the lion. You come on his terms. Don't ask him to be something you want him to be. He is who he is. Christ is the ever-flowing, abundant stream for you. You cannot come on your terms. And there is no other stream. That's it. Now, back in John 7, 37, remember I said we'd bounce back to that. In John 7, 37, and this is, this is again, just opening up again that invitation that Jesus says, come to me and drink, which is exactly what Jill experienced here with Aslan. That's the point. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, this, this feast that celebrated um, sort of the, the, I guess it's the wilderness wandering. It feels weird to say celebrated the wilderness wandering, but it was a commemoration of that and what God was doing in bringing them into the promised land. And every day during this feast, a priest would, this is when the temple of Herod was up, a priest would come out from the temple. The people would, they were holding myrtle branches and palm branches and fruit. It's just, it's a celebration. And the priest would have a golden pitcher. They would march to the Pool of Siloam. And there the priest would dip into the Pool of Siloam and fill that pitcher with water as the people would recite Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. Very clear picture. The priest would then march that pitcher of water back into the temple to the altar, ascend the altar as the people are singing psalms and pour that water out on the altar. This happened every day. But on what we find in John 7, 37, the final day, the great day of this feast, it looked a little different. The priest was then joined now by another priest who had a pitcher of wine, God's provision and abundance. The priest would go to the pool of Siloam, dip in, get the pitcher of water. They would walk back to the temple. This time, the priest went around the altar seven times. What's that remind you of? Jericho. At that time, he would go up on the altar and raise the pitcher high, and apparently people would clamor, and it was a, it was a big deal to see the pitcher on that day. People would shout. It was, there was joy because this was the moment they commemorated God delivering them into what he had promised them. And he would lift that pitcher high, and it's then 
that Jesus says, what, what does it say there? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. So, so get the picture here. His timing is impeccable. As the priest is getting ready to pour this pitcher of water, of God's refreshing, his provision of water, his, Jesus said, hey, if anybody is thirsty, really, let him come to me. Can you imagine what that did to that crowd? <laughs> he got himself in trouble a lot. But he stood up and said, you're all clamoring to see this symbol of refreshing that God gives to his people. Hey, if you are thirsty, here I am. Let him come to me and drink. Everything that David has talked about in this song, everything we can think about in our own minds and situations that we could say, there is in me deep spiritual thirst there are situations going on in my life right now that I need to leapfrog over. They're not that they're unimportant. But what is it that God is teaching me about what my greatest need is? That I need to jump forward and say, it is you that I need, O Lord. So that I understand that regardless of what may happen and what you may do, you will care for me. You will never leave me. You will refresh me. You will satisfy me. And Jesus said, that is realized only in me. That deep spiritual thirst is satisfied. And the, the assurance we can have that the Lord will take care of us is found only in Christ. He is the well of salvation. That's who we draw from. So the question comes to me this morning for us, as you think about who it is that is gathered in this room today, and no doubt any time we gather there are those who have been redeemed in Christ. There are those who have come for one reason or another by God's good and gracious providence who have not surrendered to Christ. We ask these questions. For the Christian, how, are you thirsty? What is it that's making you thirsty? Where have you been drinking from lately to satisfy that thirst? And can you see that God alone in Christ has made provision for you to have your deepest thirst satisfied. But then we think of those who've not come to Christ, who, who are parched and weary individuals who are starting to see they have a deep thirst, a deep need. It's simply, it's simply an invitation to you. Come to the fountain of life in Christ. Come as Jill did. Come on his terms. Is it scary? Is he, as, uh, as Lucy asked in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it, you know, Mr. Beaver's talking about Aslan. Well, is he safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. Come to him. Come there and drink. And never thirst again without satisfaction. Continually thirsting, continually being satisfied. And how you come to Christ to have that thirst satisfied is repentance and faith. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. That it's coming to the end of oneself, turning from self and sin, and embracing the only one offered to us for salvation, Jesus himself. Now, the way the pandemic has things going here, we simply say this. If that's you today, please either seek me out or one of the deacons, there, 
Many people in the congregation, maybe some of you came here with, would love to sit and talk further with you about what it means to trust Christ. What this whole life of being in the covenant community of God is. But don't ignore your thirst. Just like ignoring physical thirst is perilous, even more so is ignoring spiritual thirst. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided for us in Jesus an ever-flowing, abundant, refreshing, satisfying stream. That he is always and ever-present for us to satisfy our most deepest need. Father, we have come in this room this morning with many things, and they vary from degree to degree, but how serious we might find them to be. But may we, like David, begin to see that the things that come upon us in this life, the things that are difficult, are sent to us by your gracious hand to teach us, to mold us and shape us. And Lord, I know that too often we try to figure out, we try to wrestle with you and get you pinned down about what's happening and what you're doing. But Father, the secret things belong to you. And may we have joy in the meantime, trusting in you. And we simply ask that you satisfy our thirst. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you. Father, be with us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.